Kia ora. you're listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. Welcome to the Heritage Talks podcast, bringing you the best in local and family history from Aotearoa, New Zealand, the Pacific and beyond. Your heritage now. No mai, haere mai. Woman's Weekly Editor, the late Jean Wishard, was a New Zealand publishing icon. During her 32 years at the helm, she developed the weekly from a small newsprint journal into a best-selling women's magazine. Jenny Lynch, a former weekly editor and author of Under the Covers, The Secrets of a Magazine Editor, will tell the personal story behind this shy and unassuming woman's extraordinary success. She was a publishing icon, an editor whose magazine became a top-selling women's publication her head of population in the world. She was also an astute businesswoman. She became the first woman in the country to sit on the board of a listed company, New Zealand News, and the first woman in its 124-year history to be elected to the Council of the Auckland Chamber of Commerce. Phew. (laughs) Above all, she was someone who became a valued friend, and I use that word advisedly, to thousands upon thousands of New Zealand magazine readers during much of the latter part of last century. I'm talking, of course, about Miss Jean Wishart, New Zealand Women's Weekly Editor from 1952 to 1985. I have a personal reason to be grateful to Jean. She gave me my first job in journalism in 1957, and she rescued me 17 years later after the closure of, the mag- of a magazine on which I had worked. I became her assistant editor in 1977 and in 1987 editor of the weekly itself. At the time of my introduction to the weekly, Jean had been editor for five years but her association with the magazine went back to her school days. She'd been a pixie, the name given to the youngsters who contributed to the weekly's children's pages. And seeing her stories and sketches in print undoubtedly sparked what at the time was an unlikely ambition. In the 1940s and into the 50s, most girls saw their ultimate futures in terms of marriage and babies, with perhaps a stint in such occupations as nursing, teaching or or office work, while they waited for Mr. Wright to come along. But journalism, serious journalism, it was largely a male domain. Misogyny ruled in newsrooms, and with magazine jobs at a premium, the most uh, an aspiring girl reporter could hope for was a post on a newspaper's so-called women's pages, writing fluffy stuff deemed appropriate for gentle female interests. But Jean was determined, however. She had set her heart on the Women's Weekly, which offered a greater range of story opportunities, seeing it not just as a stopgap, but as a long-term career. After leaving Epsom Girls Grammar at 18, she took a course in Miss Greenwood's shorthand and typing school. Then, in 1938, got a clerical position at the Weekly in the hope of eventually stepping up to journalist duties. And she did just that. During the, the 1940s, the enthusiastic feature writer pounded out stories on a variety of topics, visiting theatre royalty, Sir Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee, 
She, she uh, outlined the plight of local pensioners and the challenges facing Kiwi war brides in America. All of these got the Wishart treatment. She also unearthed a wartime scandal. Mountains of potatoes left to rot on the Auckland city dump while cash-strapped housewives paid high prices for the potatoes in the shops. In those years, Jean regularly stayed late at the weekly city office. This meant she could have gone without a proper dinner. No handy takeaways or dial a pizza then, but she didn't. Her supportive mother, Florence, saw to that. Mrs. Wishart cooked a hot meal in the family home in Epsom, covered it with a plate, then newspaper, and caught a tram car to town to deliver it still warm to a grateful Jean. How proud Mrs. Wishart must have been in 1952 to see her daughter finally achieving the editor's chair. But to begin with, Jean didn't have things all her own way. The weekly's owner, New Zealand News, also owned the Auckland Star, and Big Brother Star insisted on giving the little woman a helping hand. Jean told me that she wasn't even allowed to choose her own cover pictures. Someone at the Star did that. She had no idea what the photograph would be, perhaps a, a glamorous woman wearing a flowing scarf or, or a child eating an apple, until that week's issue rolled off the presses. But this unsatisfactory state of affairs didn't last. New Zealand News soon realized it had a real gem on its hands. By the time I joined <clears throat> Jean's editorial of staff of five, Management was lauding the weekly as a little gold mine and the best little sixpence worth in New Zealand. Approximately 100,000 enthusiastic readers handed over their sixpences each week to get their 88-page fix of newsy local stories, self-help features and gossip, squeaky clean by today's standards. They also expected to find news of film stars and the royals, fashion from Paris, short fiction, knitting patterns, horoscopes, and advice to the lovelorn. In other words, as Jean put it, a magazine chock full of goodies. Four women had edited the weekly before Jean. Each had brought her own personality and passions to the job. One bombastic dynamo, Hedda Dyson, she, she wore a hat in the office and was seldom seen with a, without a cigarette dangling from her uh, lips had regaled readers with diatribes on everything from Stalin's ambition on the world stage to bringing up children. But Jean did not want to be that kind of editor. She had no wish to push herself forward or impose her own views. She aimed at identifying readers' interests, needs and wants and responding accordingly. With this in mind, she swung the axe to the long established social pages. Clearly, mother of four from Balclutha couldn't have cared less whether, whether Mrs. Archibald Pope Pugh had hosted a tennis party at her elegant Epsom home, or whether Miss Alison Yates Jones had chosen an ice blue satin gown with bustle back and beaded shoulder straps for the Marsden's Old Girls Association dance in Wellington. Chit-chat of that sort was an anachronism. For a magazine to succeed, it had to move with the times, she said. It must also appeal to the widest possible audience. 
Jean, a tall, beautifully groomed woman with an attractive speaking voice, mixed the appropriate element of reserve with warm approachability. While none of her staff would have dreamed of addressing her as anything other than Miss Wishart, she was a relaxed boss. If we completed the day's work before quitting time at five, she didn't mind if we left early. However, she wasn't quite so approachable to members of the public wanting to meet her in person. Jean's office in the far corner of the weekly's open plan newsroom on the fourth floor of the Star Building had a glass front. This was a decided drawback. By contemporary standards, security in the late 1950s was lax. Cranks of one sort or another could wander in off the street and demand to see the editor. Usually the receptionist stopped them from doing so. They would be advised to put their concerns in writing or simply told a lie. The editor wasn't in. But lying did not always work. An eagle-eyed visitor emerging from the lift could see Jean through the glass partition. Mrs. Potts was one such nuisance. She had decided that sex caused cancer and she wanted Miss Wishart to convey this alarming information to re weekly readers. Well, Miss Wishart wasn't gonna do anything of the kind, but Mrs. Potts was persistent. She kept turning up. Came the day when Jean spotted Mrs. Potts before Mrs. Potts spotted Jean. She did the only thing she could do. Casting dignity aside, she dropped to her knees and hid behind her desk until the coast was clear. All of us, Jean included, had a good giggle. We were a happy team. I loved the weekly. Jean had given me opportunities that uh, any teenage girl could only dream of. As well as writing, often on subjects of my own choice, I'd become Teen Pages editor, meeting heartthrobs such as Johnny Cash, my God, he had a terrible complexion, and local idol, Johnny Devlin. It was heady stuff, and I couldn't imagine ever leaving. But in late 1959, I succumbed to the lure of the great O.E. By today's standards, the newsprint weekly I left behind was a quaintly old-fashioned mag. But New Zealand was quaintly old-fashioned too. This was the era of the six o'clock swill, sly grog dens, limited shopping hours, and deserted nighttime city streets. It was said you could shoot a cannon down Queen Street and never hit anybody. Licensed restaurants were a rarity, and Kona filter coffee served with dollops of whipped cream was the height of sophistication. Girls wore elasticized corsets, known as easies, or alternatively passion killers, and kept their stockings up with suspenders. Mothers like mine were dab hands at home dressmaking. The weekly ran a popular pattern service and no woman would consider herself properly dressed until she poured, pulled on a pair of gloves when heading to town. It would be 17 years before I saw the weekly and Jean again. In 1959, the magazine had been selling close to 150,000 copies each week, a staggering figure. But Jean hadn't been about to rest on her laurels. During the 1960s, she undertook a series of fact-finding tours to investigate the ins and outs of overseas magazine production. 
She looked at everything from story content, cover design and photography to printing, promotion, advertising and distribution. She wanted to find out what worked in some of the world's top women's titles, what didn't and what, with approval from, from the Board of New Zealand News, could be adopted by the weekly. Her longest trip took her away from the magazine for almost three months. The establishment in 1965 of the Test Kitchen, under the direction of the redoubtable Tui Flower, was one of the most significant outcomes of her travels. Tui would later see herself as Jean's rival for leading lady status. She insisted that her office be bigger than Jean's. Initially, Jean had seen herself as a low-profile editor, but her globe-trotting exploits changed much of that. For along with her magazine visit, she wrote travel stories about her experiences in England, America, Australia, Hong Kong, Rhodesia, and Austria. These were the years in which she established what became known as the signature Miss Wishart look. Tailored jackets and skirts, soft blouses, sometimes with a pussycat necktie bow, immaculately styled hair. There was a secret to the hair. In the 1960s, trendy women often boosted their back comb styles with what were known as falls or switches. Jean went one better. She wore a full wig. No, she hadn't gone bald. It was simply for convenience. Jean's travel schedule was often full on. There would have been little opportunity between flights and appointments for so much as a quick comb up. Although by the mid 70s, she had put extensive travel tours behind her, she'd clearly seen the value of wigs, both as a contributor to good grooming and a time saver. They became a fixture. When I rejoined the magazine in 1976, this time as service features editor, it seemed like a homecoming of sorts. Jean was still the same Jean, warm, friendly, poised, seemingly ageless. But her style of editorship had changed dramatically. She had become a distant figure to all but her most senior staff. No longer could she be glimpsed behind a glass panel. She had a sturdy office door and it was usually firmly shut not just to the likes of the irritating Mrs. Potts. The only contact some staffers had with her was a formal good morning, Miss Wishart, as they passed her in the corridor. This really shocked me. It wasn't the warmly welcoming Jean I talked to when she interviewed me for my new job. What had happened? I concluded that she was very much overstretched. Her workload would have slayed a lesser woman. The weekly had grown enormously. The 1959 editorial staff of seven had expanded to 23, and that was just the Auckland team. The cover price had risen to 25 cents, circulation to 230,000, and readership to over a million. In addition to editing duties, Jean had become heavily involved in promotional activities and liaison with the magazine's advertising department. She made no secret of the fact that she often took work home with her each evening and sometimes worked on it until midnight. Part of that work included her board responsibilities. 
A year earlier, she had, been, she had been elected to the Board of New Zealand News. Miss Wishart is not available, she's at a board meeting, was a regular refrain at reception. Jean relished her involvement in what she called the business side of things. She told me that had journalism not beckoned, she might have become an accountant. No disrespect to lady accountants, but what a loss that would have been. I also believe that she could have become a little wary. Every newsroom has its share of rivalries and covert ambition. There were always people who think they could do the job better than the boss. She had earlier thwarted at least one attempt by a staff member to topple her from her lofty perch. In 1977, I was appointed assistant editor. This brought me really a lot closer to Jean. We developed a great professional relationship and I discovered the whys and wherefores of some of her editorial strategies. Covers, for instance. Jean saw the weekly cover as its advertisement. She said that anything from five to 20,000 sales could be won or lost depending on the impact of the cover. By the mid-1970s, celebrity newspaper, uh, newsmakers had replaced the mostly anonymous cover girl. But choosing the right person for the cover picture was a tricky business. Someone who was top of the pops one year could be box office poison the next. Except for the occasional royal, solo males didn't cut it. It was also, it was always best to team a, a male celebrity with, with a female partner of some kind. Brides were ideal, but even a mother would do. Jean once roped in Elton John's dear old mum, Sheila, for a cover picture with her famous son. Although readers told Jean they liked to see locals on covers, newsstand sales told a different story. Some of the weekly's most unpopular covers had featured famous New Zealanders. She once ran a cover of record-breaking aviator, Jean Batten. It had fallen flat. A cover of a Kiwi Olympic gold medalist also bombed. While up front on business matters, Jean seldom revealed anything about her life outside the office. What she told me about herself could be summed up in a couple of sentences. She enjoyed shopping with an eye to a bargain, listened to Radio 1ZB, liked the sportscraft fashion label, and had difficulty finding shoes to fit because of her bunions. As a young woman, she had owned a budgie, so tame, she took it with her to the movies, hidden beneath her jacket. I was absolutely in awe of her. The day that she suggested that I drop the usual Mishwishart form of address, I was stunned. To call her Jean seemed dreadful somehow, disrespectful. I could hardly get the word out of my mouth. I complied, of course, because this was a privilege granted to very few, but it took a while to get comfortable with the change. The many readers who wrote to Jean, however, had no such qualms. To them, she was simply Dear Jean. For in her weekly editorial, Jean opened up in a way that even those closest to her probably never experienced. Readers learned that she lived alone in a house on a corner section bordered on the street side by shrubbery into which slovenly passers-by regular, regularly deposited litter. She loved gardening, 
but her garden often defeated her. A large flax bush mysteriously collapsed overnight and she waged a constant battle against invasive kikuia grass. She was also a keen do-it-yourselfer, as comfortable with a toggle-bolt as a typewriter, who thought nothing of installing a new sliding door track in her wardrobe or replacing a gasket on the lid of her chest freezer. Like many people, Jean had her domestic setbacks. Her hot water cylinder blew its top. Her television set went fut. Her vacuum cleaner exploded and burned a hole in the carpet. And she managed to shrink a new pair of trousers down to pygmy size in the wash. She complained of trouble finding simple everyday items in the shops. She lamented the fact that nice honeycomb tripe was unavailable at her local butcher. Revelations like these beg the question, why was such an intensely private person, a virtual stranger to many of her staff, prepared to share so much of herself in print? I think it came down to friendship. Jean saw herself and the magazine as the reader's friend. And one way of engaging with readers was to talk about the kind of everyday things that they themselves might have experienced. After learning about her ailing flax bush, people wrote in about their own floppy flaxes. And I've no doubt that she would have received similar responses to stories about temperamental television sets, litter bugs, and clothes ruined in the wash. Encouraging reader participation in the magazine's content was another way Jean fostered what she called a bond of warmth and understanding between the magazine and its readers. As well as inviting contributions to regular sections, such as the chatty over the teacups, she aimed at involving readers in major features, surveys, and fun competitions, which sometimes offered unusual prizes. At one point, readers were invited to, to vie for a flock of 100 sheep. She also welcomed feedback. Jean said that opening her mailbag was one of her most enjoyable tasks. All sorts of people contacted her about all sorts of things. In a single day in 1978, she got notes from a prisoner, a psychiatric patient, and a hospitable someone in the provinces who said, if you're down this way, do call in. That same day, a pot of jam arrived, no letter attached. Some correspondence was not exactly welcome. A woman sounded off about the time it took to compose her contribution to the reader's declare letter pages. She interpreted the requirement for double spacing to mean double spacing between every letter of every word. Honestly, people, people were always quick to point out errors that they'd, they'd spotted. No publication is ever free from the odd glitch, but there must have been times when Jean gritted her teeth as she responded to gripes about misspelled words, photographs printed in reverse that had happened to one of her own, even a picture of a garden plant that appeared to be upside down. Cover price increases of a little of as little as 10 cents always brought grumbles. Jean didn't dodge the complaints. She answered them in print. Most importantly, however, the contents of her mailbag provided clues to reading preferences. People told her what they liked 
and what they didn't. And what they liked, what they really, really liked were the royals. Outsiders often sneered at the weekly so-called love affair with the royals. Some people thought we had a hotline to the palace. We never denied it. But Jean was astute. She knew what she was doing. Royal coverage paid off in spades. But it wasn't a question of just slapping any old picture of any old royal on the cover and watching weeklies fly off the newsstands. Jean, who designed all the covers herself, knew exactly which royals to choose. Some were enduring hits, others simply fizzled out. The Queen Mother's famous charm had earned her enthusiastic coverage over the years, but by the time she'd reached her late 70s, most editors were thinking more in terms of eulogies. Jean asked me to write her obituary. Oh dear, my effort was binned long before the Queen Mother's eventual death at the ripe old age of 101. Meanwhile, Prince Charles had risen up the ranks of cover prospects as speculation mounted on who he might choose for his bride. Jean was prepared. She kept a photo file of all the blue-blooded young women who'd flitted in and out of his life. She wanted to be ready for the announcement of the one. And yes, she did have a picture of Lady Diana Spencer to put on the cover of our March 9th, 1981 engagement special. The issue was a bestseller, eclipsed, on, eclipsed only by the wedding special when a print run of 300,000 failed to meet the demand. For all that, the weekly was by no means, as one snide male critic put it, all about royals, twin sets and pearls and bring a plate. By the time of my return, controversial subjects like the, like the vexed question of abortion law reform were making an appearance in the magazine's pages. But this, uh, but, and this is where Jean's genius lay, she ensured that such topics were presented in a way that never overstepped the boundaries of good taste. Later, the weekly became even bolder. We began running a series of groundbreaking questionnaires designed to throw light on so, such social ills as sexual abuse, wife battering, and baby bashing. All three designed and collated by experts in their fields. The battered wives and sexual abuse surveys aimed at finding out the nature and extent of the abuse and the kind of help of any victims had received. The baby bashing questionnaire was directed at parents in a bid to know what had driven them to want to harm, or in some cases, actually harm their infants. Jean acknowledged that she was taking a risk with the questionnaires. 10 years earlier, she might have hesitated to run them. Conservative readers could have taken her to task for including such unsavory material in a family magazine. But as always, Jean's instincts were right on the button. The results were eye-openers, and the weekly was applauded not only for electing to publish the questionnaires, but for the valuable information the responses had produced. 
As well as answering the questions, a number of people gave further details of their experiences. One exhausted woman confessed that she had felt like sticking her screaming infant with a fruit knife. To feel that they could talk frankly about such personal and painful events in their lives showed exceptional trust in the weekly. I believe that trust was largely down to Jean. But astonishingly, New Zealand news management, which by the mid-1980s was full of new brooms, had become twitchy. The weekly circulation had stalled. New magazines had arrived on the market. Could the weekly hold its own in this increasingly competitive environment? Perhaps not. Not with a 64-year-old woman at the helm. When a football team fails to deliver, its coach gets the bullet. When a newspaper or magazine hits the skids, and of course the weekly was light years away from that dire situation, its editor comes under fire. In April 1985, Jean was eased out six months ahead of her formal retirement date so that the magazine could be modernized and offering more for younger readers. Characteristically, she made no comment about her premature department, departure. Jean always kept her feelings to herself, but she must have been deeply hurt. After more than 32 years in the editor's chair, this. The public had no idea of the true situation, and Jean's spirits must have been lifted by the outpouring of good wishes she received. An Auckland reader, uh, reader wrote, quote, thank you, dear lady, for all your hard work. There has only ever been one magazine in our house, and I and my family will be much the poorer for the loss of your guiding hand. Journalists from some such publications as the Herald, the Auckland Star, the Christchurch Star, and the upmarket Metro magazine marked her retirement with articles that looked back on her career and probed the personality of journalism's most enigmatic but successful women's magazine editor. Enigmatic? Certainly. For years, writers had cast their eyes over Jean in an attempt to figure out what made her tick. They had seen her as pleasantly poised, calm and controlled, shy and retiring, modest to the point of self-effacement, and, quote, a compelling amalgam of feminine attractiveness and mental capacity. In a nine-page feature subtitled, However Did She Do It?, Metro's Carol Wall homed in on Jean's unfailing charm and gentle demeanor, but suggested that under the sweet smile lurked the sharp, tough teeth of a tiger, accustomed to getting its own way. The stars and Fennec described a dignified, ladylike woman whose single-minded devotion to the job could be likened to a love story. And a love story it was. I have no doubt about that. Jean Wishart was a very attractive woman. People wondered why she'd never married. 
clearly she enjoyed male company and judging from what I'd seen of her working relationships, men enjoyed hers. It was said that she'd had two serious suitors, one of them based in Sydney. But Jean had turned her back on marriage. She'd been married to her job. Besides, she already had a supportive partner, her mother, Florence. And it was to this understanding and resourceful woman that she turned to let off steam and share her triumphs, setbacks, and plans for the future. In fact, everything associated with the challenging and complex business of editing a top magazine. Needless to say, Florence Sutton, she had remarried, was a guest of honor at Jean's gala dinner, uh, gala dinner send-off. And what a send-off it was. Champagne flowed and tributes too. Some of the greatest compliments coming from those who had hastened her departure. Later, the weekly ran a three-page accolade from senior writer Jack Lee, in which he described Jean's light but firm editor's touch, the care she had taken to provide the right balance of material in every issue, and the artistic flair that had lent itself to cover design. The editorial staff presented her with a cheeky mock color starring herself, produced by senior photographer Michael Willison. She absolutely loved it. Jean said she was looking forward to the luxury of spare time and the chance to tackle more do-it-yourself projects around her home. I should note that she had designed her own house and had contributed much of the finishing work. Shortly after she left the weekly, she was awarded an OBE for services to journalism. Then she settled into a life of quiet domesticity. As the years passed, Jean became increasingly reclusive. We kept in touch, mainly by phone. I don't drive and her place was awkward to get to from pu by public transport. But in all those years of phone calls and Christmas card messages, we never once discussed the current weekly. So how does it make you fear after Jean's departure? Initially, not well. Jean had always said it was the kiss of death to make sudden dramatic changes to a magazine. She believed that magazines should evolve as society itself evolved. But management of May 1985, to its everlasting shame, hadn't shared that view. Her successor was tasked with making changes. The weekly went up market. It became sharper, slicker, glossier, better looking perhaps, but totally different. Readers objected. It wasn't the magazine they had known and loved. Circulation plummeted. When I became editor at the end of 1987, I had to try to restore something of the traditional weekly. I tried, for seven years I tried, but the magazine would never again achieve anything remotely approaching the heights it had enjoyed under Jean's leadership. I last saw Jean in Auckland Hospital in November 2016, just days before her death. She was 96, frail, 
almost completely blind, but there was nothing wrong with her intellect. I sat on the side of her bed and we talked about the good old days. She was upbeat, warm, as engaging as ever. There is a lot more I could say about Jean, and I say it in my memoir, Under the Covers, The Secrets of a Magazine Editor. The book is about my own 32 years of life in print, but six of its 19 chapters are devoted to the Women's Weekly and Jean. I have dedicated it to her memory. I was fortunate that the trustees of Jean's estate granted me access to a vast amount of her personal memorabilia. That memorabilia now forms the Jean Wishart archive at the Auckland Central Library. Jean was modest, fundamentally shy, the last person in the world to blow her own trumpet. I make no excuses for blowing a trumpet on her behalf. Her contribution to New Zealand magazine publishing was unparalleled, and I want to make sure she is remembered. She deserves nothing less. Thank you. Stay tuned for more tracks in this Heritage Talk series, or visit the Auckland Library's website for other podcast tracks. Kia manawa ho. Enjoy. <laughs>